Pantheria. Welcome to this episode of Dad Bod After Dark. Uh, just Jake and Eric tonight. Hope you guys are all doing well. And uh, without further ado, let's get rolling. Eric, how you doing? Great. I'm I'm halfway halfway through this beer. Uh huh. Because we started late tonight, as I was uh, finishing up that the old pigskin game. Yeah. That was being played on the on the TV. So yeah. Uh, pretty happy with that ending. And your, um, and your team won. Yes, my team did score more goal unit baskets than the other team, and came out on top yeah. as it would turn you see, out. So, yeah, you see the the goal is if if you end the game with more points than the other team, usually you'll win. So, I know, and so a lot of coaches miss. Well the, done. You know, if you focus on that strategy, you tend to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to focus on like the opposite strategy, right, uh-huh. of scoring fewer points. Unless you're in golf, I guess. Yeah, but luckily that didn't happen. And so your uh, nemesis, Pete Carroll, can can take the L tonight against the mighty, mighty Cardinals. Yeah, he'll be okay. He's got enough W's for the... Mm -hmm. Even if some were uh, ill-gotten. Yeah. Packers won. I saw that. And... uh, they're doing a lot of that lately. The Vikings yeah. did not lose today, which I was happy about. Didn't they have a bye? Yes, they did. <laughs> That'll do it for you. Okay, so here's something. Okay. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, so you are. Those of you that that want to follow me, you can. It's at uh, DeHofferman. And... Uh, Okay, so I had this really cool thing happen. We can, we're totally off topic. This is Dadbot After Dark. There's no history involved in that. Mm-hmm. So back in September, um, you know, we have um, we have a few students on campus right now, mm-hmm. and one of them's a voracious reader, and I knew that when I had him in fifth grade. So. He's in seventh grade now. And I said, Hey, you want to try a book? Cause he was, he was going through books, trying to find something that he thought he might like. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to put you onto the wheel of time. And for those listeners out there to this podcast, um, you know who you are strictly for history. Yeah. Um, this is a fantasy novel series and, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. And so I gave him the, the, they had done these editions a few years ago where it was like uh, the eye of the world is book one, but they split it into two smaller books. So I ordered these and I gave him the first one. So that was like September 10th. Well, yesterday or sorry, Thursday must've been Wednesday or Thursday. He started book four. So that's right after that's shadow rising, right? Yeah. I mean, and these are not books for the faint of heart. This is not Harry Potter. Okay. <laughs> this is in terms of length, like we're yeah. talking thousand page books here. Um, hundred page forwards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, they're long and there's a thousand characters you have to keep track of. 
Uh, but it's funny talking with him because he he'll pronounce a character's name. I'll be like, so what do you think about Nanave? He's like, Nanave? And I'm like, oh, gosh, child. He's trying to really get the Gaelic in. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with using the glossary. He provides one. Yeah. Anyways, um, so six weeks and he's finished three books. Like those books all took longer for me. I know you're a pretty fast reader. You can sit down and knock out huge chunks, but I can't. Yeah, it's more of a, when I read, and especially when I read The Wheel of Time or any of those kind of epic type fantasy stories, I just get so engrossed that I just keep, I can't put it down and I'll be reading yeah. until two, three in the morning. It's not that I'm super fast. I'm just, I block out the rest of the world when I get involved in it. Yeah. And I've um, witnessed that you sitting in a chair and like not willing to, yeah, to deviate, which is fine. But yeah. so I, I made a post. Um, so I follow a couple of people on Twitter. Uh, one of whom um, is like, he does fantasy reviews and another one is like, uh, WOT on Prime because Wheel of Time will be coming to Amazon yes. Prime Video sometime so whenever they get to wrap it up. So I I punched out this tweet and basically tagged them in it. And then I had these people come up um, who to follow off to the right. And it was like Elaine Trakand or Trakand. And so I followed. And now like other ones keep popping up. Like And this one, Lanfear, probably not going to follow her. She's trouble. Um, but like they're, they're all like the characters all have Twitter accounts, which I find odd. Yeah. Because I'm wondering who runs these Twitter accounts. Um, don't follow Ishmael either. No, I know. Like there's, they're evil characters they literally... in the books. And so, <laughs> so, uh, on this list of Twitter accounts to follow, I don't know what this one's nonsense. That one's nonsense. Like Rand Althor, Matram Cathone, Al Landman Madragarin, uh, Nablus Mogidan. No, thank you. Moraine Damadred. Also, what about N- Tom? next one, NSA slash CSS, NSA Gov. Why am I? That has nothing to do with these people. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the ACDI, Tarvalon is running national security. Oh, actually, that makes a ton of sense yeah. now. That's odd. So. Yeah, I just find that interesting. Oh, follow Tom Marilyn. That would be a good follow, right? He'd be a good Twitter follow. Probably. Matt. He'd be he'd be all right. Matt Cawthon. Yeah. Probably. He would keep saying we, blood and ashes, though. We've honestly just lost all of our listeners at this point. No, we didn't. None of the true believers. <laughs> so... But another thing I picked up recently is I started watching uh, Designated Survivor. Keeper, which, right? Which every time I mention it, somebody says, oh, that's like that's like 24. And I said, well, no, not, not really. Except, you know, the format of the show follows the format of every other uh, broadcast TV show. But it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's Kiefer. How bad can it be? It's not bad at all. I mean, I haven't watched it, but but it it, it follows it follows the usual formula of a you know whatever kind of show it is political drama, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it always ends with a cliffhanger, and that's fine. But that's well, good. 
Um, yeah. yeah, Wheel of Time. I haven't, gosh, now I want to read it again. I think I've read through it twice. Uh, I've read through the whole thing once and I've read through large chunks maybe four times. I think I've read up through like number eight or nine, four times. Yeah. Um, and I'm in a reread right now. I've gotten through three, but it's been months since I, but I was listening to those primarily, which I found fascinating. Um, cause I read, a, I, I listen to a lot more books now just because that's what I have time for. If I'm driving or, you know, doing dishes or something, I can listen to a book. Um, but it's it's interesting because uh, depending on the the point of view of each chapter, uh, it's either the narrator is either a man or a woman, depending on whose point of view the chapter is for. Uh, and so mm-hmm. it's really interesting because uh, for the first four books, it's the same two narrators. So I don't know if they tried to get in the got these narrators for the entire series. That would be great um, for consistency's sake. But I'm enjoying listening to them. Oh, okay. Yeah, that that would be interesting to hear because there are so many POVs in the series, especially by the end, that if you were to listen to it, it would give you a lot more dynamic, uh, make it just a more dynamic story, which could be really cool. I, I won't so. do it because, you know, my weird principled stance on audiobooks, but I'm happy for you. I... I had that stance, but <laughs> I know you did. I haven't had six minutes sitting down for 10 yeah. years. So no, I know kids do that. Kids, man. I know. So, well, news for me, as you know, but the rest of you guys don't, um, you know, I'm going to be moving to Salt Lake in about a month. And so me and my wife, we took the kids up this past weekend uh, to Salt Lake City and, and that metro area to look for a house. And and so we did. I found a nice little house in Ogden, which is north of Salt Lake a bit. And um, had our inspection, appraisal. We should be getting that report this week. And everything's looking really good on, on closing on the house. But while we were up there, I mean, we were up there for a weekend. And, and that's all that YouTuber money, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just flush. Yeah. So thank you, Blager Grills for a oh, rich yeah. endorsement, yeah. Um, but yeah. while we were up there, I was able to use my ethos on shopping carts and <laughs> judge where we were about to move to. And so um, I think on the third day or so, we went to, a, I had to stop at a Walmart and pick a couple things up. And so I went to the bank first um, and then I went to the Walmart and pulled in and there was not a shopping cart in the lot. Like not a single shopping cart was in the parking lot. Um, If there were, they were in the corrals, but then every other shopping cart was immediately pulled off and and brought into the store. Um, So I'm feeling real good about Ogden because it looks like they take care of their shopping carts. Um, Yeah. I hadn't considered that, you know, as a measure of an individual, uh, do you put your shopping cart away um, the ethics of an individual, but to measure the ethics of a community yeah, by the status of their shopping carts overall, that uh, that's next level. I know. Right there. I know. 
you know, I said this, maybe I didn't say when I, when we originally brought it up, which was the, the first episode we had, but um, when I visit my wife's family back in Pennsylvania and I did the same thing, Western Pennsylvania, about an hour or so North of Pittsburgh. So it's kind of like a rough and tumble blue collar, you know, type community. Like Scranton? <laughs> Scranton. No, isn't that like Northeast? That's what I mean. it's like the opposite side of the state. I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, but you know, they kind of got that, you know, kind of tough mentality. But they put the shopping carts away, which means they're not they're they're doing all right in my book. Um, so anyway, we went up there, found a house. We we're working on closing on it now, and and uh, we're really excited. I think it's it's going to be a good move for us. Good, good. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't interrupt uh, dad bod history much. The background no. of Jake might change slightly. Yeah, slightly different wall, I guess. Make it the same. Exactly. We, we want a seamless transition. Okay, no problem. So what else you got going on? Nothing so else this week, this week we have our uh, junior high is coming back on campus. Uh, almost completely. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot of stress in dealing with all the procedures that we have to do um, with junior hires um, in terms of spacing and, you know, we can't mix cohorts and, you know, you got to use hand sanitizer when you come in, you have to keep distance, like, and the odd thing is for some reason, and you know this, right? Seventh grade boys just can't keep their hands off each other. I don't understand it because I don't remember being that handsy as a seventh grade boy, but for some odd reason, they just cannot stop. Yeah. And it's funny, right? When I was still teaching, I would, I would be teaching up in front of the classroom and one of my students would get up to go sharpen his pencil or whatever. And as he was walking behind his friend, he'd just go whap, smack his friend. And be like, (laughs) why did you do that? And he would look at me, honest to God, and he goes, I have no idea. Like, I, <laughs> well, at least you're honest, I, I guess. It just, I don't know why. It I just happened. I don't know why. Yeah. Like, well, or I, okay. I, you know, I don't know what thought process precipitated it, but I remember just thinking, I'm going to slap my friend in the head. And then it <laughs> happened. Yeah. And I'd be like, apologize. And then the friend would be like, no, it's okay, Mr. Ryan. Well, no, it's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. Yeah, it didn't bother me. Yeah. I tried to hit his hand with my head. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they can, so anyway, they can, what you're saying is. So now we're like, do not touch, touch anyone. Yeah, that's not going to happen. And uh, they're like. So it, it'll be what it is. I mean, we'll just have to be tough on it. it. It's just like anything else. Like, how seriously does the teacher take it? We know students tend to be a little bit more. Um, what would you say? Uh, oh, not obedient, but they're 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 more disciplined. Like the week that we do standardized testing, mm-hmm. because they kind of know, and the teachers know that they have to do it a certain way, and so everyone is really strict that week. Mm-hmm. Even if you're, you know, the teacher that lets kids get away with anything all all the time. 
that particular week, you have to do it this way. It has to be done. Mm -hmm. And the teachers and the students basically take that and they say, well, okay, then I'll, then I'll do that. So we kind of have to take that stance with them in terms of like, you have to keep your hands off each other. If you can't, you're going to be removed from the classroom or, you know, whatever it is, but you have to do this. This is non-negotiable. You know, as a teacher, I'm, I'm okay with kind of saying, listen, I don't mind some talking generally, as long as it's respectful, as long as you're on task, as long as you're not disruptive, but I'm not, I'm not the person that needs silence in my room constantly. So, um, but then it comes time for standardized testing and I'm like, nope, it's gotta be silent and it's non-negotiable and their behavior changes based on what the expectation is. So we'll see how that goes. Um, we do have to wait until Wednesday. And so we'll have two days without most of them. And then They'll be on and, um, and you know, we start right away Wednesday morning, standardized testing, standardized testing, Nice. like what? well, right out back. of the gate. And it's, it's not like, it's just like, this is the week it's scheduled. Um, and it's interesting. Somebody I was talking to, um, we're kind of going back and forth, you know, how wise is it to do this testing? Should we just put off testing this year? And I said, uh, this is actually perfect. This is really good because we're going to get the best data possible in terms of what COVID did and what COVID, the COVID shutdowns did to our students. Because we have data going back 10 years on every student and how, how a part, let's say the class of, uh, what's seventh grade, maybe the class of 2022, we can see how that class gained every single year over the past 10 years or whatever. And we're going to see what happened Mm -hmm. over the past six months. We're also going to see as a whole what happened to the entire group. And, um, you know, again, the testing is not necessarily, you know, parts of it are, uh, what'd you say, are kind of uh, diagnostic for Mm -hmm. both students and for schools in terms of what are we doing well? What, uh, what is is a student struggling with where they falling behind or making gains? But this is actually a really good opportunity for us to get good data on what gains or losses have occurred over the past seven months due to the COVID shutdowns in schools. Yeah. And the effectiveness or efficacy of standard, uh, of, sorry, of distance learning. And it'll just be interesting to see what the data kind of shows us, what we see. Um so part of me is like, oh, standardized testing. And there's plenty of schools and teachers out there like, we shouldn't do it this year. It's like, now you should, because we can see what's actually happening. A local district um, that we, I don't think we actually live in that district, but our school is in that near that district. They're right now, this first quarter, looking at a 60% failure rate among their students through distance learning. Wow. Because they're just not, they're not doing their, what, what the teachers want them to do or have them, you know, set out to do. It's just wild. It's, it's absolutely wild. And like I, we kind of talked about this summer with our, uh, uh, from pandemic to progress yeah. is there's a lot of things happening that we are not going to see the, uh, the effect of for months down the road, if not years for, from, not necessarily just the pandemic, but the responses to the pandemic 
like yeah. educational shutdowns or economic shutdowns or um, <clears throat> even like long-term effects of the actual illness and all this other kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I think it's a, it will be really interesting to see how, how our students on a individual small group and the national level have all been impacted uh, by this. You would expect some sort of regression, but like you said, while I'm not a huge fan of standardized tests, in this case, they do provide a data point for marking progress or regression. And it's, it's relatively an objective data point. It's not, well, my kid is fine, you know, which is how right. oftentimes we look at, well, did it affect schools? Well, my kid is fine or my, my kid's class is fine. It's like, well, that's great. But this, you know, that's not, that only has so much value. Whereas in, if you can couple that with, and the tests bear out this, so we can say, in reading kids slipped this much or in science they went down this much or or maybe in, in some other area they went up, we don't know. But it will be really interesting to see when you get those, what is it like around third quarter is when they give you the results and you go over them with the parents? Yeah, we so you know we do these tests and, and when, when we were teaching together, we did them at the end of October. We usually have the tests returned by early December, but we, I think we, we shared them, them in, third quarter prior yeah, report yeah. cards. So, you know, I remember where we used to teach Jake, uh, th there was, there was often discussion about what data or what kind of things we could pull out of these standardized tests. And the thing that always got me was like, you know, we'd see a dip from level to level and there'd be some question as to what's going on there. And you can always kind of see our, our teachers looking at each other like, oh, you're not very good. And then you consider when you have mm -hmm. a class of 13 students in a grade and you have two new ones or you have one leave, how that impacts the overall score. Mm -hmm. And I tried to, to discuss it once and kind of say, you know, we have to like pull the data out and really look at the data because, you know, what students have been here longest, what students are actually products of our school, which ones, you know, are not our recent products of our school. Uh, at my current school, one of the things that we never filled out on our forms uh, back in Arizona was the grade at which the student started attending the school. Mm. So we could see students who've been here for all eight years, how are they faring? And then students who are more recent attendees, you know, how do they stack up against students who are products of the entire school yeah. program, uh, which is, you know, that's a great data point. So, um, yeah, it's just interesting stuff with statistics. Um, really gets me going. Oh, I can tell, but I do feel bad for you because seventh graders are, especially the boys are filthy no matter what. And so, yeah. Like, honestly, you're going to need more than hand sanitizer and desk wipes. You're going to need like a, a shower, like a disinfecting shower that they can walk through when they enter the classroom because they're just We've got like the worst. These like, they did this, this bio, I don't even know what it was called. They came through a, a week and a half ago on a weekend and they're like, 
uh, anything you want cleaned, have it uncovered. So I like took everything off my desk and made sure everything was set out that I want to clean in. Basically every surface they sprayed and it's just stuff that like stays on for six months. And it's kind of like, you know, you get those like, uh, anti, antimicrobial, uh, I don't know, like your, your phone case can be antimicrobial has whatever properties mm-hmm. that, so that's kind of what they put on. And then they wipe down like staplers and all this other stuff. I mean, it's been pretty, uh, not, not intense. Yes. But no, spray the, spray the kids with that. They're the, yeah. It's not, it's not the desk. That's the problem. It's the, yeah. When you open the, the door, instead of blowing air to keep the flies out, it should be blowing Lysol <laughs> onto the That's people walking it out. Yeah. Uh, Although, okay with, with the kids, especially the boys and, and the amount of Axe body spray they cover themselves in, it's amazing if anything can survive. So, I mean, Axe should just start putting in some bleach, maybe. Antibiotic, uh, antibacterial. So the kids just yes. like, what? I smell like Axe and bleach. And, and you'd walk into the bathroom after they oh were in there and it's like gosh. they fumigated it. It was, I can't smell and it would almost knock me out. And I'd be like, oh my God. <laughs> what is there, there's this? clearly a lack of oxygen in this room. <laughs> yeah. I haven't, I haven't, I had that once. I've had that happen multiple times in Arizona, but out here in California at our school, I've had it happen only once. Well, that's good. And, and it's like, what do you, that was with fifth grade boys. Like, what are you doing? Uh-huh. Why do you need Axe body spray? These girls don't even know you exist. Yeah. And the Axe is not going to draw their attention to you. Do not believe those commercials, kids. Mm-hmm. You don't spray Axe on you and have every girl's head turn like, towards well, you. Well, I want to smell good. Here's a, here's a life hack. Go take a shower. <laughs> it works real well. Yeah. Shower instead daily. Of, and instead of covering your stinking okay. axe, go take a shower. Well, it's just at PE. Yeah. All you're doing is mixing sweat and axe. It doesn't. Get a speed stick. You're fine. So anyway, like I'm excited. Hours. I'm really excited for you to, uh, to have the middle schoolers come back, but yeah, yeah, I'm excited to. There's have some them. aspects I do not miss of teaching. Yeah, having them back them. in the classroom is going to make it so much better. But it also means now I teach. I'm going to be teaching like history class twice instead of once mm-hmm. um, over the live stream. So it'll, it's it's just all the little minutia and the details, all the um, classroom management stuff that I, none of us have had to deal with in seven months, and yeah. so that'll make it trickier, but. Um, looking forward to it. Um, you know, it's that, that mixture of excitement, anxiety, trepidation, all those things mixed in, but, um, mm-hmm. this is, this is what, uh, teacher, a teacher wants, you know, to have the kids in the classroom. So looking forward to it should be good. Yeah, It'll be good. And it's just one more step towards, uh, normalcy. Yep. You know, moving, yep. moving on through this pandemic. Day 200 of 15 days to slow the spread. So here hey, we go. Bend the curve, right? Um, so. The flat curve know. society. That's what we should start. <laughs> We're flat curvers. Gosh. So it would just be lines. We're just the line society. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. I think, never mind. I won't. <laughs> 
I think we could get Hunter Biden in on the uh, Lion Society. Oh my gosh. And into politics. Boo. I was just a bad joke, is all it was. I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to. I had some students like bring up some politics. They walked in, some sixth graders, uh, because they're on campus, walked into math. Studying insights. Sixth graders. And they, they walk in every day. They don't say good morning. They're talking about baseball or something else that's just moronic. And then they start talking about the debate. And I'm just like, can you just, I, I don't say shut up in my classroom. But I'm like, can you just stop? And they're like, what? I'm like, stop. Like my degree, one of my, you know, my minor is in political science. Please stop. We're not talking about the debate. We're not talking politics in here. Just, just don't. Like you, you're 11 years old, and nothing mm-hmm. against the young, right? But they just don't have a grasp on, like the nuance. Well, and largely their politics uh, most, or their parents' po- politics. Yeah. Yeah, but it's age. it's like they come in and they say, well, you know, and I'll just leave the the, the candidate's names out of it. But like this guy, he said so-and-so. And I'm like, what's the context though? And, it, and it's just, so anyways, hey, like I, I think Twitter is bad, but listening to sixth graders try to explain politics to me is no better. <laughs> I think you could say there's an equivalency between yeah. the commentary on Twitter and sixth graders commentary on politics. Um, you know, it's funny though. It, it reminds me of when I first moved to Arizona and started teaching it at, at our school. And uh, I was teaching government in the fall. That was the one of the elective. I, I taught government in the fall and I taught economics in the spring. And so it was seventh and eighth graders was the government class. And so that was during the election 2008, Barack Obama, John McCain. Obviously John McCain being the, the hometown boy um, and the school being a small Christian school, um, typically the politics was right of center. And um, most people were at the school at least were um, in favor of McCain. So it was really fascinating to have those discussions during government class about the debates and about the issues and and the the whole push between you know bringing your morality into politics and different economics and you know why raising taxes is good or bad and, and stuff like that and it's really fun to have those discussions and it was really fun to kind of break down the election when it happened and explain well here's why McCain lost and yeah he won these states but Obama you know and it was it's kind of fun to have that discussion. And it was good because John McCain and Barack Obama, policies aside, were fundamentally good people. And so you could you could right. have the discord, like even when they had that town hall debate and there was a woman that kind of famously went after yeah. Obama for being a Muslim and McCain said, we're not having that here. Him and I disagree on policy, but we're not getting into that. Um, and that was only now 12 years ago. And, and what a far departure that is from the environment we find ourselves in where it's like, yeah, McCain and Obama disagreed vehemently on policy, but largely they didn't attack each other's character um, in, in the elections board. And I would say the same thing with Obama and Romney and pretty much every election prior to 2016. Um, well, yeah. I, I know I, there's I, been character attacks 
I'm not saying that, but like the character of the candidates was never called into question and they never went after their kids um, like they do in this current campaign. Yeah, I'd say currently the candidate, well, okay, so Trump does have a young son. I say both both candidates have older children because both candidates mm-hmm. are nearing their Old. 80s, let's not forget. <laughs> but, Biden's got a bunch of grandkids and Oh, yeah, Trump has a bunch of grandkids too. Trump is approaching 80 and has a 12 year old son, right? 13, 14 year old son. I don't know. He's like six, six, though. I mean, he's still th- I think he's he? 14. Okay. Yeah, he's so tall, but he's but like 14. I, seen, I mean, towers over his dad. Well, there you go. But the point being that, you know, most presidents, when they enter office, their children are not. Uh, well, many presidents, their, their children are not necessarily adults. I think to um, Bush Obama, twi- or the Bush girls were in college, and they kind of got Obama girls the, were high school and, or in, in uh, middle school, school, high school. Yeah, Clinton's daughter was in high school, I believe, when she entered. I think she entered college, and but as long as right, largely when yeah. the kids, you know, I know the Bush girls got lambasted for partying and. I think one of Obama's daughters smoked pot or something like that, you know, and the pundits would kind of hit them, but largely the candidates didn't go after them. The can't, the official campaigns didn't go after the kids. Yeah. I will say, and, and uh, I'm not going to mess up. I'm not going to mess with this uh, non-sponsor, but the fifth column podcast uh, <laughs> I listened to just recently, the last two episodes have been really good, Yeah, but one of, uh, I, Pretty sure it was uh, Michael Moynihan was saying, you know, the the Trump campaign should really not like attack Biden on anything re- uh, involving nepotism. Like that's the one you really as the Trump campaign go after Biden on nepotism. I know. And, and it's like, yeah, it's very true. Like, I mean. Donald Trump Jr. has probably used his family name to his advantage. Like, and and what person really would? And there's not many people that hide their family name in order to mm-hmm. not get recognition. But um, yeah, they they had some good podcasts, and I think some of that. Um, I don't know. Just yeah, we we talk about things kind of splitting and going in extremes. Um, so here's a question that came up. I was talking to somebody and let's turn to the Supreme court now. Uh, yes. cause it looks like Amy Coney Barrett, they passed they 51, beat a to, tonight. 51 to 48, um, to, to cloture. Is that it? Yeah. To, to end a cloture. So they it basically ends discussion. Yeah. So they're going to limit it. So they'll have vote voting tomorrow. I assume. Um, <clears throat> personally, I think she's, She'll be a good justice. Um, and I think there's a handful of Democrats who under. If this is a President let, Romney. Well, even if it was President Trump, well, shoot, I can't even say that. If it was President Trump a year ago, I, th- I think there'd be a handful of Democrats that would say, yeah, I'm, I'll confirm her. But given the circumstances, and maybe a year ago is still going to be the same. Well, issue, you are but- right, because Gorsuch. He got some Democrats to vote. I don't know if Kavanaugh did, but that whole thing was toxic. So that's kind of a different yeah. situation. But I think she did a fantastic job 
in in those hearings and and even cory booker the way he spoke to her he's he's excellent at at he he gets really the, theatrical and dramatic but he has like every time i heard him speak he was very much like here are the questions i want answered he was very respectful where some others were not whatsoever um but so here's the question because I sent you that that picture the other day of the article that talked about Biden would create a bipartisan independent committee to explore what expansion of the court, mm-hmm. which if you want to expand the court, I again, all it is a, is a congressional law that sets it at nine. You can set it whatever number you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so no amendment needed. So I don't really have a problem with expanding the court as long as it's done fairly, I suppose. Because I, I think number one is you have uh, you have quite a few cases coming up there and nine people might not be enough to deal with that workload, right? And I think some other countries have like oh, 35 you're talking about justices. Like a rolling court? Well, yeah, you could do that uh, where people are drawn um to hear cases but and so yeah if you're going to say well we're going to go from nine to 21 Mm -hmm. uh and what we're going to do is we're going to let the uh uh say like the house majority leader and the and the senate majority leader come up with their uh six nominees and the house minority leader and you know assuming they're the same party basically the republicans the leaders in each house and the, the Democrats leaders in each house come up with six nominees mm-hmm. and bring this. And, and I was, you know, I don't even know if that's what someone's plan is, but I think that's a really good idea. And, and expanding the court does a couple things. One, it, it gets more people in there Two, um, it, it takes some of the workload off some of those justices and three, it makes it so that when we're filling a vacancy, it's not such a big deal. Yeah. Because it's, it's just become more and more contentious every time. Mm-hmm. And someone brought this to me and it was a question. Would it be better for there to be several extremists on, on the court from each side in, in terms of extremists, like, like a far right view of the constitution and a far left view of the constitution, or would it be mm-hmm. better to have nine centrists yeah i i don't know honestly i i I get the goal and i think it's a good goal the having a balanced court right and that's kind of what the fear is with amy coney barrett is there's always been kind of a five four tilt at -hmm. least in the past 20 years or so for favoring republicans and now it's going to be essentially a six three tilt and Roberts clearly is okay with being a deciding vote um, in certain cases on the liberal side of the court. Um, but even if he is, it'd still be five to four against. Um, so I, although, who knows? I mean, Amy Coney Barrett might come in and they might not strike down this case that's going before the court regarding Obamacare. Um, mm-hmm you know, and, and Roe v. Wade. I, I, I don't know. I mean, and that's why as if I was Biden, you know, and say so you're going to pack the court, if I was him, I would say, well, I'm not going to rule it out, 
And I guess we'll just have to see what happens with this proceeding and how she rules, you know, um, and kind of do a switch in nine, switch in time saves nine sort of thing with it, um, like Roosevelt did. Um, but we'll, we'll see. I, I don't know. I, I like your idea or the idea that you heard. I think that's a good idea. Um, if you make it larger, by definition, I think it would become less extreme depending on how you built it. Yeah. So, the, but the question posed to me was that if you have a few extremists, let's just stick with a nine person court, uh, a few extremists, you know, that's, that's probably better for the court than to have nine centrists because if you have nine centrists then if they all kind of leaned right for a few years and they never had disagreements and they never had debates, then they just lean right or lean left. But if you have some extremists, then the, then those ideas get like hashed out mm -hmm. in a way that like somebody on the right can say, here's why we think this amendment means this. And someone on the left can say, well, this is why it should change. And they actually have those ideas out in the air rather than just having a bunch of centrists say, yeah, we'll rule in that favor, or rule in this favor, and you never get the debate. Um, so it's kind of where it's good to have the extreme views in that controlled environment. Yeah. Well, what's interesting with the Supreme Court, and, and I think this is part of the problem, is we, we look at nominees, and this is something we've discussed, we look at nominees as like political operatives and they're not political. And I know you can say that during the nomination process is very political, but the candidates themselves aren't political. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor was nominated by Reagan, I think. And so a Republican, right? So you'd expect her to be conservative and against Roe v. Wade and all that, but she drifted to the left by the time, um, or at least to the center by the time she left. Certainly John Roberts is in that same kind of vein. He was nominated by Bush, confirmed by a pretty large bipartisan majority. And he's, I mean, he's still definitely center right, but he plays center and, and he'll play left um, quite a bit too. So it, it's just interesting how certain judges will drift um, over the course of their tenure on the Supreme Court. And I think it's more of a reflection of their interpretation of the Constitution, not necessarily their politics or morals, but just how they interpret law and the Constitution changes, not, you know, I'm going to strike down Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade's been on, what's 50, 60 years now? Yeah, it's, it's got to be approaching that. But I, mean, I think so, that that's also comes from you know, if you have, I guess, right-leaning politics, you're probably more of a constitutional originalist or textualist. Textualist. And in that, in that case, when a case comes up, you're reading it um, from the, the, the point of view of, does this fit within the Constitution or not? Mm -hmm. If you're, so if you're on the right, you might get a case that say, well, a conservative or a Republican would say, this is how this case should be decided. But as a justice on the court saying, this is what the constitution 
was supposed to mean. And so here's how it would be carried out in this case. They're going to follow that rule where mm-hmm. somebody on the left, and, and that might lead them to a left-leaning decision, but somebody on the left is going to say, well, this is what I think it should mean today. Mm-hmm. So I think it, in terms of if your philosophy on the Constitution is, is living document, there's less tendency for you to drift right than somebody who's on the right mm-hmm. who sees it as uh, – you know, an originalist form is they might drift, drift left on a case because that's how the constitution guides them. I don't know if that mm-hmm. makes sense, but I, I guess in my mind, it makes sense that justices that we see as on the right or conservative might drift left on a case or two because that's where they're led by the constitution and by the law. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I think Roberts is a great example of that. I think, and he gets a lot of flack, but when um, he was the deciding vote on gay marriage, was it 2012? I don't remember. Um, on the gay marriage decision, and everyone's like, well, you betrayed your principles. And he's like, well, see, like, you know, I think he has to divorce his, I think he's Catholic, his Catholic faith from his interpretation of the constitution. It's like, while I disagree with this uh, as part of my faith, and as part of my moral center, the, there's nothing in the Constitution or any other rulings or precedents that says this is unconstitutional, gay marriage is unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that was um, kind of an example of, you know, I see a, a Republic conservative justice or a textualist or originalist siding with the left or the progressive um, side of the court. Um, because they were able to divorce their faith from their interpretation of the constitution or their, however you want to interpret or call out their, I guess, positions, their own personal positions. And I think that's why uh, a right-leaning justice might tend to drift left or seemingly drift left is because they are divorcing their own personal opinions Mm -hmm. from from their ruling on the, on constitutional matters. Um, so I think that's kind of a natural tendency. If you, if you have that philosophy on the rights of individuals and, and all of those kind of documents and, uh, social political theories, you're gonna, you're going to then walk the law a certain way. Then if you saw it as all living, breathing, malleable, to the needs or desires of the current time, uh, you're going to be more constrained to follow the law than just say, this is what it should mean. And so I, yeah, it's interesting stuff. And, and I think Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see what happens. Um, should, should Biden win. And again, if I read Twitter five minutes apart, I'm either looking at a 400 electoral vote landslide for Biden or a 350 electoral vote landslide for Trump. I can't, I can't tell. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think Biden's polling, and I get it. Everyone's got memories of 2016. Um, his polling has been pretty consistent. So I guess unless you catch lightning in a bottle twice, I would say he's favored to win um, and Trump isn't. But what I do find 
fascinating, and I mentioned this to you a couple days ago, is the turnout, the early turnout, I think uh, as of tonight, it reached 61 million people. I saw 57, but yeah. Have either voted voted in person early or turned in their mail-in ballots early. Obviously, Democrats are leading that because kind of how the last couple months has shaked out, you know, um, and Republicans are expected to vote in person more as they get closer to election day and then very heavy on election day. Um, but I think the turnout thing, I'm really happy about, and I hope the turnout is higher this year because I think the more people vote, the more that the eligible voting population votes, the better it is for the health of the country. Um, as far as democracies, modern democracies go, we have one of the lower voter participation rates in the world. Um, typically in Europe, it's like 70 or 80% and, and we're lucky if we can get above 60. Um, so I do think that's a good thing. And I think it's a good thing for this reason. I think part of the partisanship we have in in our current cycle, for sure, but recently, even in the past 20, 30 years, is that the, the only people that really dedicatedly vote are the true partisans and usually the people on the farther ends of the political spectrum. Um, that's why primaries, they're always pulling the candidates to the, either the left or they're pulling them to the right. And then they got to run back to the middle in the general. Well, part of that is because it's set up that way. Um, you know, you have closed primaries where you, you only let registered Republicans or registered Democrats vote in the primary, which leaves out typically about 30 to 40% of the population of that state um, in your primaries. And then if Republicans or Democrats know, well, if all I gotta do is get my base, then by nature, they don't have to really push to, to get that center, that, that large center. Um, but if 60, 70, 80% of the people that can vote do, you're not just talking to the Republicans, the partisans on each side or the, the Democrats on, on, on their side. You're talking to every demographic and every political ideology. Um, and so I think that would not necessarily bring change in position, but it would definitely bring change in tone if, if you knew it wasn't just about drumming up your base, which is what it seems like the past few elections are. Whoever can get the most of their base wins and not whoever can appeal to the most or the broadest coalition of the electorate, if that's how you want to look at it. Yeah, I guess there's something beneficial to more people in being involved with the process. Of course, my my leaning is toward that my, my leaning is that, you know, more people involved does not necessarily make something better. And so there's, there's a cautionary part to this in that um, how well informed are these new voters? And, and, and again, we, we can, it's not necessarily left or right, but you know, when, when people are, people who've been disenfranchised for a variety of reasons are, are suddenly promised a thing, if only they do is vote for it and then they can get this thing, 
um, that's where it gets really tricky because suddenly, um, I, I, the, the, the mob mentality, of course, we saw this with, you know, we see this kind of populism. We know that's kind of how Trump got elected was by energizing a group of people that felt kind of outside the system. Um, now the narrative over the past few years has been in the opposite direction. Well, if you're not well off, if you're marginalized, all this stuff, um, we can fix it. And again, mm-hmm. I, I think more people involved is great, but I, I still, you know, we, we kind of we talked about the Senate uh, a few days ago or, or a week ago, kind of the mm-hmm. role of the Senate, um, letting Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. in, which is fine. Uh, not Washington, D.C., not as a state, but I, I think that's fine. But, you know, if it's just to get senators, let's let's look at why we're letting Puerto Rico in. Do they want to be a state? Um, and I think the Senate should be kind of a one more step between the voters and that representation. Um, you know, the, the House of Representatives is where the populations can have their voice. The Senate, I feel, should be really where the states have their voice. The states is like a state government have their mm-hmm. voice and um, and kind of a step removed from the individual voter. But, but there's problems with all of these things. Um, I'm just curious to see, you know, with the voter turnout, if it's really high. And again, how do we interpret that voter turnout if it, if it leans into Biden? Um, you know, is that a mandate for a particular left-leaning policy shift? Or is it a mandate just back to normalcy, right? Because as somebody who considers himself, um, I'm, I was registered Democrat this summer just so I could vote for Tulsi Gabbard in the primary. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a registered libertarian. And as, as somebody who, but that's okay. Like I, again, we, we talked about character and, and policy, right? Like I, I'd say most of Trump's policies or a large majority of Trump's policies are policies that I could say, all right, I think that is generally a good policy. It's going in the right direction or it's, it leans in the right direction in terms of character. I think Biden's character is far superior to Trump's, uh, in terms of the interactions I've seen of his, um, but man, you know, why do I really, it's frustrating that they're divorced from me. Right. Like I want character mm-hmm. and policy in, in one, one person. Um, so is the election, especially the popular vote, if it leans to Biden, is it a mandate on that policy or just on character? If it's just on character, which I think it really is, uh, should we take two years and just chill out? I and mean, like Biden just, just sit in the office, just be like, listen, everyone just calm down. We're just going to take a break. Right? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't hate it. I honestly wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, a Calvin like Coolidge if, presidency, I think would be really good for us. I, I agree. But a couple things. One, I think the appeal of Biden, and I think honestly, the reason he won the primary for the Democrats is because he wasn't as progressive or as far left as a lot of the people he was running against. Obviously, Bernie Sanders, um, Elizabeth Warren, even Kamala, everyone has said she's more socialist than Bernie Sanders. Um, at least her Senate record appears to show that. Um, and, she, and she loves a police state. Well, yeah, I mean, she was the big prosecutor, right? right? That was so, her thing um, before she became a senator. But 
the point is, and I, I think that's why Biden was able to win the, the Democratic nomination is because you can say the establishment was rooting for him, which is probably true. But Biden has that Midwestern appeal. Scranton. Scranton. Yeah, Scranton, Dunder, It's the Dunder Mifflin vote. Right? But he's got that Rust Belt appeal. He's that, he's Joe, right? Like, that's why he's, I think, leading Trump is because he's, you know, obviously he's going to support more liberal or progressive policies than any Republican platform. But He's not going as far as Bernie with the Medicare for all stuff. He's not going as far, you know, as Elizabeth Warren would want on taxes or Green New Deal with AOC. And he can still appeal to that broad spectrum of the electorate. But the other thing that you said is that you registered to be a Democrat so you could vote in the Democratic primary, which I think is part of the problem. Not you registering to be a Democrat, but that... (laughs) But that the primaries are closed to you unless you register as a Democrat. Right. Which again, and that's not in every the, state, is it? No, that's just no, something. Each, each state's Got parties, I think, rules. make those rules. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying is like, why, when you, when you essentially, uh, I don't think the Democrats or Republicans in any state generally have more than forty percent of the vote each, which means there's thirty to twenty to thirty percent of the vote which is independent, which is in the, and I know in Arizona, I think it's like 30, 30, 30. Um, it's like a third each. So by having closed primaries, you're basically telling two thirds of the population of your state, we don't want your say in who our nominee is. And they do that at each state. And I think that's part of the problem. And I, I'm sure there's people out there that can make a good argument for why a closed primary is good. But if you open the primaries in every state, you wouldn't have this run to the far left, run to the far right, and then run back to the center right. that we do every single general election. And there's there's a couple solutions to that. I want to say that California has an odd don't they like system the top of, two, regardless of party? Yeah, for like Senate, I think mm-hmm. for the senators. So, and this year we're not voting on senators, although they'll they, if if Biden wins, they're going to have to appoint somebody. Um, the seat. For Harris's seat, um, but yeah, it's like the top three, regardless of party, are on the ticket for the the California senator uh, to the U.S. Senate. Uh, the other thing that that I think um, is one big shift, a voting shift or election reform, would be ranked choice voting. Yes, and I think Maine does it right. I don't know. I think Maine is the the only state that's doing it. And um, just to think that, um, you know, in a state like California, where, um, well, California is a bit different. In a state like Arizona, where it's a swing state, right? Mm-hmm. We see Arizona is very purple right now. Uh, could be, you know, full in the blue by the end of the month, or by the end of next month. Um, for the people that want to vote their conscience, but also want to make sure their, their voice is heard um, against the candidate they really don't want. Mm-hmm. So if you're a Green Party person, you can vote Green Party, and then you can say, but I'll also vote, my second rank vote is to Biden, to the Democrats. Yeah. And if you're a hardcore libertarian, you can say libertarian. And then 
you know, I really, really wish we'd have better monetary policy. So I'd, I'd vote for the Republicans on my second vote. Um, yeah. Now in California, I have no problem voting my conscience, right? Because I know it's a blue state. I can vote my conscience. Mm-hmm. I so man, Kanye, it's on there, right? <laughs> he, but on the California Absolutely. ballot, he was the American Independent Party, and he was the vice president. Yeah, I that. think somebody put him on. Like it wasn't even like he didn't even know that he was on the ballot in California until the ballots went out. Yeah, America. so it was oh, a yeah, the American campaign. Independent. Yeah, they put you on. But I, I think. But to your point with ranked choice voting, and it's something, I think it's Maine, they're the only state in the union that does it, at least on the national level. Um, I think that's one of those other things that could boost voter turnout and voter engagement. Because a lot of people, especially younger folks say, well, what does it matter? Why should I vote? It's not gonna matter. But if you can say, look, vote your conscience, vote your principles, You know, pick the candidate you think is best for the country but if not them, you have a second vote to one of the big two parties, if you want. Or heck, do another third party, if you want. Yeah. With your second vote. But Libertarian party? <laughs> communist party. party. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that would allow those smaller third parties to potentially hit that 5% threshold, which I think is what they need to get the federal funding. Yeah. Um, and it would show... The big two parties, it's like, look, if you truly want to get a majority or if you want to get, you know, a mandate, so to speak, then you need to play ball with these other groups of the electorate. Um, It's not quite like in Europe where, you know, they do parliamentary and they build governments with multiple parties, but it, it would be one of those things where you can kind of read the tea leaves, so to speak, and say, look, there's a shift, a big shift um, to voters on the Green Party. And that's something that we need to capitalize on. Or look, there's a whole lot of libertarians that voted in this election. And if we want to keep them happy, then, then we need to address their, their thoughts on either tax policy or property rights or, or whatever right. it is. And I, I think that's something that could bring, in a sense, bring moderation in our, at least our tone and, and uh, kind of bring down the tempers. Because if you make the people, the citizens feel like they're part of it and feel like they're heard. That's a big part of what I think the problem is right now. It's just a bunch of people don't feel like they're heard on both sides. Yeah. And so they, they get angry and then it just continues to steamroll. Um, you know, it's interesting because I started watching, uh, that designated survivor show. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the premise is Kiefer Sutherland's character is the uh, housing and urban development secretary, right? Ben Carson. And he is, uh, may he rest in peace or power? I don't know what we say now. Um, Well, Ben Carson's fine. Herman Cain's the one that Herman Cain, okay. (laughs) So. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Carson Cain. So. Um, he, uh, so he's the designated survivor and Congress gets destroyed and everything. Everyone's dead. Right. Um, but it's funny because it's like, well, this is clearly somebody like had this dream scenario, like 
if you had like everything is wiped out and you have someone to build it back up, who would it be? Well, who was our first president? He was an independent, right? So this guy is an independent, independent, which I think like, what's the likelihood that one of your cabinet secretaries is an independent? It's just very unlikely. That's pretty rare. But he is. And so he has this kind of like, well, I'm not tied to either party. I'm, you know, it's just kind of this dream scenario, right? Like the perfect situation for the White House to be filled with an independent. Uh, but it's, mm-hmm. a, it, it's, it's a really interesting show because, again, it's like, what would somebody who has no ties politically do? in these different situations. Right. Um, and it's funny. So the first two seasons were on ABC, I think. And the third season was picked up by Netflix. And so it's hilarious because I just got into the third season today, about 10 minutes in it's a, you know, I'm listening and watching it and it's like, someone's like, what the, and drops the F bomb. And I'm like, what, what just happened? Oh, I got Netflix. So Yeah. yeah, it's like, like swearing went through the roof in the show. Not like, but it was pretty clear, like when the the eleven year old kid, you know, swears, yeah. And, and Kiefer's like, "Well, you know, my daughter, you know, maybe don't use language like that." It's like, "Wow, you really." It's like we're on Netflix. Let's open up the can. <laughs> I guess whatever works, right? Yeah. We need to get picked up by them. Oh, by Netflix. Netflix, really? Yeah. Or. Hulu, I don't know, Disney Plus, whatever you want, man. Disney is absolutely going to be screwed in California. So our uh, our oh, state because just, of the closed down. Yeah, so our state came out with the guidelines for um, for theme parks, and so we have a, a tier system, color tier system, and top of the tier is purple. If you have more than seven new cases per hundred thousand in a day on average and like over 8% positivity rate or something that's purple tier. That's like, everything's closed. And then you go down to red tier and then down to orange tier and then down to yellow tier. Yellow tier is fewer than one cases per hundred thousand in a day on average. Theme parks cannot open until that County is in yellow tier. There's like 10 counties in yellow tier and they're all basically uninhabited counties. Mm. Orange County went back to the purple tier last week. So we're looking at Disneyland, probably Universal Studios, um, Six Flags. They're not going to be open for another year. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Florida has just wide open. Yeah. Like we're not closing anything full capacity. I think Florida and California are a tale of two cities. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. I don't think they could be farther on the, on farther ends of the spectrum on how they dealt with Corona and, and the results both- don't look too different. Not really, and that's what's fascinating. I would say New York, obviously they got hammered early, but before since we then, really knew anything. I mean, yeah, but since then they've been 
pretty good. I don't want to give Cuomo a ton of credit, but they really screwed up him. early. And they did. And and again, they screwed up with they had the you know the nursing homes that and... early on they didn't know as much as we know now. Yeah. But still, I mean I'm just trying to think of other populist states and how they dealt with it. And I would say New York is one of those. They got hammered early. They made some they made some mistakes for sure. But then they learned and and the past several months they've kept their infection rate relatively low, despite their super high population. Um, whereas Florida was like, we're gonna be open and deal with it. And they their cases exploded. At the same time, even though California was locked down, their cases exploded too. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, it's just odd. And then Texas, they had a huge spike and and now it seems like it's getting better. Looks like but, the Midwest uh, is getting its spike right now. Yeah. So we have some guidelines for travel for, um, for staff. And, um, you know, basically... Everyone kind of has different guidelines for travel. And so our guidelines, I'm not sure exactly where they came from, but one of the things is like, you know, you can't, if you're traveling to a state that has more cases than California, um, it's like a three-day quarantine when you return. There can't be a lot of states that have more than California. Right now it's Wisconsin, Illinois, and Texas. Oh, okay. And okay, those are fairly populous states. Uh, if it was case rate, like percentage, there's like three states you can go to, like Vermont, Washington, and Oregon, that have a lower <laughs> case rate. Because even California is like we're at like eight percent. Arizona's at thirteen. Idaho is at like forty percent or something. But I mean, it's like what? So I can't travel to Idaho. I'm not going to see anyone when I'm there. Hey, I've been to Boise. It's hopping. <laughs> Okay, outside of Boise though, so Montana, <laughs> no, right. let's say yeah. it's it's Pocatello, so, yeah. But I'm just you know, so like the Midwest is is has this big wave right now. But did they have a wave previously, or is this the the wave? Well, it's funny because when I went to visit Wisconsin, June or July, Arizona was in the throes of their huge spike, and I flew up to Wisconsin. Saw my family. And then like the day I flew back, I think it, an order went out in Wisconsin, like no more travel from Arizona. And then since then- Who let Jake in? Yeah, so I'm sorry guys, that's my bad. But uh, since then, that's, and then Arizona started to go down and then Wisconsin's slowly crept up. And now they're, I think they have the highest outbreak in the country. Um, and uh, it's kind of a mess right now. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think theme parks, you know, again, when we talked about this in Pandemic to Progress, I think theme parks are going to have some long-term effects, even after this is over. Um, no more lines. Yes. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, we'll see if they, I mean, if they immediately go back up to how busy they were before the pandemic or, um, I mean, I know they, especially Disney is hemorrhaging billions of dollars um, having their theme parks closed. And I would assume Six Flags and Universal Studios and and all that are the same way. So 
it, it will be interesting to see how things are different. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it, it, it is slowly getting back to normal um, with the schools opening and now college football is back. So, yeah, you know, pro football's back, but <laughs> they either got cardboard cutouts in the stands or they look like an old Houston Oilers game as far as attendance, like <laughs> pretty crazy to see. Yeah. I, you know, we have like, is our theaters going to open up and, and if they do open up, do they have anything to show? Because our, our, our studio is going to release films to 25% of theaters. It looks like wonder woman is being, um, it might be theater at home. Like a lot of the other big movies wow. because they pushed it to December, but then I think they're like, well, we're going to have to push it again. So they're like, well, Let's get what money we can. I think during... Black Widow pushed to May. They had yeah. pushed to November. Now they're pushing to May. Um, so, which will be interesting. And I think it's, go ahead. Uh, well, like WandaVision is coming out in December. Yeah. On, But that's on Disney that's Plus. That's on TV, right? Yeah, yeah, on Disney Plus, which will be good. Um, but, because that'll be the first installment since... Uh, Spider-Man Far From Home last summer. Yeah. From Marvel. Well, I think Warner Brothers, you know, they released Tenet. Yeah. And I think that was kind of a canary in the coal mine for them. And that, despite getting really good reviews, and apparently it's an awesome movie, only made 20 million bucks opening weekend. And yeah, that'll hurt. I don't think they want another a flagship movie like Wonder Woman to get hit like that, since it's a potential billion dollar franchise um but you know they can't keep delaying their releases because dc's got other stuff coming down the pike and so does marvel like they can't just keep pushing these movies back because they got other movies that they want to release in 2021 and 2022 um so we'll see what happens i do think i, was, I don't know who i was talking to but um you know they said about theaters like well i think the theater industry is dead i'm like i don't think it's dead but I think you're going to get a lot more of those Alamo brew house type theaters where they have food and drinks and mm-hmm. more of like an experience, not just going to watch a movie. Um, I think those yeah, theaters get, will get more out of each visitor Yeah, because well, I know IMAX. what's the, uh, we have one in town and a studio movie grill mm-hmm. and you know, I'll be like, Oh, you know, during the summer, like, Hey, tickets on Tuesdays are five bucks, you know? And, so during the summer, go, mm-hmm. oh, 10 bucks for the movie. Yeah, but I just dropped $70 on the meal. So, you know, eh, you know, it is experience. I like sitting there eating some good food and having mm-hmm. a few different drinks. And that makes for a good experience. And uh, I don't have to go to the one place. Like I would spend plenty of food on a meal if we went out beforehand or after. And I think, so, and I think theaters have been trending in that direction for a while i know in phoenix there's several mm-hmm. dine-in movie theaters that you can go to and there's an animal brew house there's a one you know like every town kind of has their own like that so i think it would accelerate that and i think like the big ones like amc and down here in arizona harkins are going to accelerate that model because i think it's going to be hard for them to get butts and seats so to speak yeah. to just I- go watch a movie 
when you can do that at home now. Like, yeah. I, and I think, oh man, you know, one of the best things that, that theaters did in my opinion was reserve seating. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. What, yes. what an amazing, just tiny, tiny feature to toss in there that makes it better for everyone. Yeah. And, so nice. and, an, and another thing we talked about, pandemic. and there's no stress and it's, it's absolutely oh, like just show up and, you go into a crowded theater and you go, those are mine. Like there's yeah. no argument. Like I you're in my seat. seats when we oh, leave well, here. No. I'm, yeah. I'm yeah. unbolting them from the floor <laughs> and taking them with me. And the seats uh, are like, they're like couches now. Like you oh just, gosh. oh man, take a blanket in there and just fall asleep. Yep. So hey, what were you going to say? Sorry. From pandemic to progress, we're kind of going back to that. Um, something I noticed in some grocery stores now. Do we call it pandemic to progress remix? We'll just rename this episode. Yeah. No. Uh, what okay. Are we, re, Redux. 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 Whatever. Doesn't matter. Uh, is I went to a grocery store the other day and most grocery stores have a system of checking out where you pick your line. And, you know, if you pick your line and it turns out to be a bad choice, you're kind of stuck. I mean, you can go find mm-hmm. another line. So maybe someone opens another register, but inevitably you stand there for five minutes and somebody has a bunch of stuff and they check out. Another person checks out the person right in front of you, like tries to write a check and it takes them a year and a half. And they, so the obvious fix to picking your own line is to be in a single line. And when you get to the front of that line, you get assigned to the next available register. Yeah. And and that's what I'm seeing now because they want to control that flow of people. And that line moves quickly because you're being you're being distributed to four or five different different registers. Nobody gets frustrated with the person in front of them because there's nobody in front of them. Yeah. You know, or rather than one person, it's five registers that are open or going to be open. And the next available one is yours. Um, tiny adjustment, but it, it's a, it makes so much more sense. Mm-hmm. Because God knows I have always picked the worst line. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. Whatever line you pick, you're wrong. Yeah. That's the wrong line. It doesn't matter. It's like, it's like a rule. Uh, yeah, like because you know Betty in front of me, her her friend like three lines over sends her a message and is like Eric's behind you, so make yeah. sure you pull out the checkbook and have trouble yeah. with it. And and can we talk about the people that still clip coupons? Like that is so infuriating. Well, like, I well Cameron's not that. here to, to no, defend himself. Put it put it on your phone, get your app for your fries or Safeway or whatever it is, and just. Scan it and say, "Oh, here's all my coupons." Is there an app? And then, yeah. What? Yeah. All right. Well, I need you to get just that get app. a Fries app or whatever your grocery store is there, and they have an app, and then you can say, "Here's all the deals for this week," and you can say, "Yes, yes, 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 yes," and then you go buy your groceries, put them in your cart, and then you scan it, and it takes all the coupons. Stop! Stop cutting out paper coupons, America. Like, it's ridiculous. You know, everyone needs something that gives them meaning, Jake. And no. maybe clipping coupons is that thing. Well, I'm sorry. It's, it's speaking it's of ridiculous. which, speaking of meaning, can I just say 
No. Can I just yes. say, I, I've seen a few commercials where it says voting is the most important thing you can do. And can I just call that out as the most ridiculous nonsense in the world? Voting is one of the least meaningful things you can do. Not to mention it has almost zero effect on anything. But like, I think raising children might be the most meaningful thing you do or the most important thing you do. I think like treating your your husband or wife, your spouse with respect is one of the most important things you can do. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, yeah. So I saw that today oh. and I see it. And I'm kind of like, it's, I'm desensitized to all the voting stuff coming my so. way. I finally turned off on Facebook, like stop telling, I voted already. You're not changing yeah. my mind at this point. I sent my ballot in a week ago, but I, I do think the most, I think that's the hyperbole is, is, is high right now. Right. I mean, that's what it is. It used to be when we were younger, voting is your civic duty. And now it's the most mm -hmm. important thing you could ever do. So I think that's just the hyperbole of the climate we live in, making everything and bigger than it is. Yeah. And it is important. Voting is important. But to it's your point, like number 64 it's... on my list, to be honest. <laughs> Easily. Yeah. You know, I, I, I get it. I mean, we don't vote every day, but. We take care of our kids. We take care of our family. We go to work. We, you know, do all those other things every single day. So those, yeah, those are more meaningful. That ad but just irritated me. And, I can tell. and my wife has been really irritated with an ad. It's not even for in our district. It's for a, a representative in a nearby district. And he's he has a statement. And every time she hears it, she's like, he didn't say two. And he left a word out. And and he said and he, he's kind of mumbling like he's got like cornmeal in his mouth when he's talking. And he says yeah. this statement. He's like, I want to work with you. And and it's like he's gonna say to deliver for the Central Valley, but he never says the two. And as an English teacher and somebody who spends a lot of time dealing with grammar, yeah, it drives her up the wall. Yeah. Like I'm going to work with you, deliver for the Central Valley. She's like, two, two, two. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, he. It ain't happening. Yeah. Well, I'm not voting for him because I can't. It's not my district, but. That's funny. I that vote would against be, him anyways. That but... would be her her problem with the commercial is the grammatical yeah. errors. Not, not the positions, not the tone. He didn't even grammar. mention his policies, but his grammar is terrible. So, hanging participle. Yeah, that's awesome. Is it? I don't know what it is. Don't a split an infinitive, right? A loose infinitive. I'll just call it that. That sounds like something. A loose <laughs> a infinitive. Loose infinitive. <laughs> hanging out in unsavory neighborhoods. <laughs> uh, an infinitive of the night. Yeah. <laughs> of ill repute. All right. I, I think... I think we I think should probably call a lid on this. Yeah, let's let's call a lid on it. That's a great way to end this night. Gosh. Keep your infinitives tight and call don't a let lid. your participles What does that hang. even mean? Call a lid. I guess it's some old campaigning term for like malarkey. Well, malarkey is just a great word. I'm glad that it it's is. getting back into the <laughs> I'm glad it's coming becoming normal again. Oh, normalized malarkey. Remember private malarkey? 
from Band of yeah. Brothers. Private. We won't say it here, but yeah. I'm yeah, glad that, it's back. That's, that's Irish. Do you say Irish? It's like, yes, it is, sir. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. All right. All right. Well, like well said, yeah, let's we put a lid on it. Call a lid. Call a lid. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, like and subscribe. Share this with your friends if you see these videos um, and yeah. your enemies. Uh, they all want to yeah. see it. Yeah. But they don't know they want to see it yet until you share it with them. So, yes. And enemies uh, can be our most avid followers. So, please, please follow us yeah. if you're an enemy. Um, yeah, share, like, subscribe. This is just Dadbot After Dark. I'm Jake. I'm Eric. Have a good night.